having illusions of competence in learning, in other words, fooling yourself that you have learned something when you actually have not, is probably the most common problem. And it is so common that even I do it. Like, Mm -hmm. I'll read a paper and I'll go, I nailed this. I got this. It's all in long-term memory. (laughs) And then I'll try to remember it the next day. And I'm like, what was the subject of the paper? (laughs) You know, it's just amazing how you can fool yourself into thinking. But it's just because when something is in front of you, it is right there in that short-term working memory. As far as I know, like if you're sitting there looking at something, you have no way of knowing whether it is also in your long-term memory. And that's Mm. the only way you've really learned it. Hello, PCAMers. Welcome back to Personal Knowledge Management with Aiden Halfon, the podcast where I interview fellow PCAMers and dive into the unique ways they use their PKM systems for work, creativity, and life. In this podcast, you will learn the mistake most students make learning for school, highest leverage studying techniques, and how to change your mindset to learn math and science. Dr. Oakley has a diverse background in linguistics, going into military service after high school before coming back to get her PhD in engineering. At a young age, she believed she wasn't capable of learning math, but through applying active studying techniques and learning how to learn, She overcame her ambivalences. And using her story and knowledge, she teaches the popular online course, Learning How to Learn, as well as having many written books like Learning How to Learn, A Mind for Numbers, Mind Shift, and Learn Like a Pro. And I'm personally really excited to talk, Dr. Oakley, because I've taken your course. I've read most of your books, like A Mind for Numbers. And I think there's just so much value uh, particularly in the realm of learning that we're going to dive into today. So the first question I wanted to ask is, what is your story? How did you come to where you are now? Oh, gosh. Well, <laughs> I think you kind of told the story a little bit uh, of how I started as a, a linguist and then switched to become a an engineer and a professor of engineering, even though I never thought I could do math or anything technical or anything like that. So, it's, it boggles my mind sometimes to go, oh, wow, you know, I'm a distinguished <laughs> professor of engineering now. Who could have guessed, uh, at least in my earliest years, when I loathed math and science? I remember I kept getting called into the principal's office because I refused to pay attention in math class because I just thought it was completely worthless and I didn't like it at all. But um, but the thing is, uh, the real world has uh, can have an effect on you. Uh, so, I, I did everything people told me. I followed my passion. I went to the – I wanted to learn another language. I, I randomly picked Russian Um, which at the time seemed to make sense, but I wish I had studied Spanish because our granddaughter is going to be bilingual. Her daddy's from Chile. So, um, but the the thing is, um, I just, I really wanted to kind of figure out how we conceptualize reality. So, I thought if I can frame how I'm looking at language from 
a very different perspective in that I'm, I'm cutting reality differently when I'm looking at it through the lens of a different language. Um, that maybe I'd have a better understanding of reality. And, mm. uh, and, and it's funny because Noam Chomsky had I- inspired me to, you know, he was like, oh, uh, language and sort of the, um, our understanding of grammatical structures is really the be-all and end-all and his linguistics theories um, you know, really inspired me to study language when I was young. And at the same time, now a lot of his work is turning out to be, uh, shall we say, problematic. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, it, in essence, has what many, many, it, many um, in artificial intelligence feel that Chomsky's theories have held back artificial intelligence, not to mention the field of linguistics itself, by many, many decades. It's kind of a false herring um, approach that's very facile. And, you know, I was just boggled when I found this out because he was one of my early heroes. But uh, I think there's there's even a book about, about um, Chomsky's challenges shall we say and uh but in any case i i i just realized that when i was going to get out of the military just having a a background in slavic languages and literature was going to get me nowhere fast as far as the kind of interesting jobs i wanted to do and i i like wasn't Mm. too interested in working for the cia or the fbi and that was pretty much the only place you could go and um so, I just decided to see if I could change my brain and learn in math and science. And because I, mm-hmm. I always wanted to have new perspectives on the world. And so, that's why when I got out of the military at age 26, I started at the lowest possible level of remedial high school algebra and slowly begin climbing my way upward. But what's mm. interesting is that if you stick with it and keep going, the higher you go, the more you learn, the easier it gets. And mm. uh, it, it, it is kind of funny because sometimes people will be like, oh, you know, it's hard to get my bachelor's degree and pick your poison and uh, – and it must be super hard to get your master's degree. Well, actually, master's is a little bit easier. And then by the time you get to your doctorate, it starts to get even easier because you're kind of refining your knowledge um, of that area. But anyway, that's sort of how I grow to be who I am now. And uh, I was very lucky in that uh, you know, I went back to the university. So my first degree was in Slavic languages and literature, but my second degree was uh, in electrical engineering. And that was super hard. I, I would like work for six months in learning um, math and science. And then I just couldn't take it anymore. So I'd go out and work out at <laughs> on Soviet trawlers 
you know, and just drink all the time and (laughs) what we did. And then I'd come back after six months and, you know, work for another six months. And it turns out that that's not really a very good way to make progress very quickly in uh, studying engineering. But I had a lot of fun (laughs) when I was doing it. So, And then also I had the opportunity to go down to Antarctica and work at the South Pole Station yeah. Um, as a radio operator. And that's where I met my husband. So I always say, I wow. Into the earth to meet that man. But anyway, yeah. I slowly climbed upwards. And then when I got my PhD, they were like, there's an opening here. Apply. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. I became a professor. <laughs> for anyone that's wondering, the best tip in a mind for numbers to study better is don't drink tons of beer while studying. <laughs> It's <laughs> a pretty good one. That's a, that's a sin qua non. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think one of the most common things that happens to students in high school, especially, is they have one teacher that believes in them, whether it be in English, in math, in whatever, and that becomes what they think they're good at. And all the other classes, they believe they can't succeed in. So I'm interested in hearing, what do you think it was that allowed you to go back into math and science from military service and get over that hurdle that so many students seem to have in believing they can't do that? One thing that um, the teachers often are taught nowadays is just like everything always has to be a positive motivation. But actually, there is a little critter in your brain called the habinula that is somewhat akin to the amygdala. And what the habinula does is it reacts to Um, negative stimulation very strongly. It helps you learn from bad things. And um, so, and S does the amygdala. So, when I was in the military, I mean, the military did a lot of good for me. You know, I learned a language and I I, I learned discipline. Um, I also learned what I didn't want to do and I did not want to work for um, for some people who were, I felt were not competent and I didn't want to be like always told what to do and made to do assignments that I didn't think were, you know, you can't even pick sometimes uh, where you're going to go, what your field is and so forth. I, I was shocked. I, I thought that when I uh, graduated with my degree in Slavic languages and literature, I would become a military intelligence officer. I mean, oh, Russian was a big deal there. But uh, turns out that lots of women were language majors, just like me. And so military intelligence was getting flooded with lots of women, just like me, who were language specialists. And as it turns out, women, um, they have this really early advantage sometimes. They, there's, there's a little bit of a difference. Um, like early, early on, little boys 
have a bit more testosterone than little girls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what this does is it, it makes no difference in their ability on average to learn math or analytical skills. But what it does make a difference in is, is um, wind, it can, uh, testosterone can slightly delay verbal learning. So what this means is little girls, um, you know, have a bit less on average testosterone and they can learn verbally like really well and they get it set in their mind early on. I'm really good at verbal things. And when you, we tell kids, follow your passion, passions develop about what you're good at. And little girls can often be a skosh better at verbal things, even though they're just as good as uh, at math as little boys are on average. Mm. So, um, so I, that probably had a, you know, you get that little early extra impetus. Oh, you are super good. You're, you're better verbally. You always get these positive feedback of you're, you're good verbally. And so then you choose to go into those fields. So, um, so anyway, the military in their great wisdom made me a communications and signal officer which doesn't mean you talk to people. It means you set up radio gear and you set up switchboards and you sweat up, set up all the electrical systems that enable people to talk with one another. I had no idea what was going on. I mean, I was lost. I'd be like, okay, we're plugging in a circuit. So a signal goes down the wire, but why does it have to come back? <laughs> you know, I this just doesn't make sense. And so I had four years where I was floundering around as sort of a prototypical, really bad signal corps officer. <laughs> but what it did, it, it inspired me in a lot of ways because for for number one, it was a very negative experience, but it also made me kind of go, yeah, well, what the heck is engineering? What is electrical engineering? And then also, I didn't want to end up in a circumstance in the rest of my life where I, I could be, you know, I had a job and I can't like quit it if I have a bad boss or I don't like it or something. I wanted to have more control over my life. And I could see that, um, you know, as it was, I was kind of set up for a life where I would... Um, be pretty tough for me to be solidly in control and in demand um, as far as whatever my my skill set was. Hmm. So that's that's why I wanted to switch to or you know and I but I didn't know whether I could do it. So I um, you know it was the first couple of years I was studying engineering or towards engineering. I was a nervous wreck. Um, <laughs> But it did help to go work out on the trawlers and drink, you know, for six months at a time. But, uh, uh, but gradually, it, it, you know, it started to, to come about that, yes, you know, this, you just have to kind of keep at it. And I often took a much lighter load um, in learning, like most students would take four classes. When I'm taking engineering subjects, I would take three classes. And uh, and even though I'm a slower learner, I could learn just as well and even better 
you know, I remember some really fast runners coming up to me and, you know, well, can you explain this to me? <laughs> uh, and, and they would often, they do like really a lot better on, than me on tests. And I was like, why is this? They're coming up and they're asking me questions because they don't understand, but they're doing much better on tests. Well, then I find out, well, it's because they're in study groups. They have old versions of the tests. And so, uh, I, uh, you better believe I learned to get into some study groups. And, have <laughs> of the tests. and it always bugs me that, that um, professors are like, oh, this is so terrible that people can find old versions of my test. I'm kind of like, be my guest. You, you know, <laughs> find old versions if you want. Because actually, the more practice problems students do, uh, mm -hmm. the, the better off they are going to be. It's actually incredibly helpful for their learning. And, you know, I usually tweak things a bit, but if they happen to chance across a very similar problem or even the identical problem, well, good on them. It meant they studied uh, and, you know, got those answers. So, uh, yeah, I don't have a problem with that kind of thing. Yeah. Wow. that That's beautiful that you went into this military service training and didn't see yourself as someone that was an engineer or math or science-y, but through the process of admittingly going through that arduous four years, you did come out with this interest in going back and, and learning that more. And it sounds like through that process of learning and seeing yourself get better and better over time, it slowly built up the confidence that you could learn math, which I think is really important to note because some people think, particularly for passions around my age, that they're inherent, like you just have it or you don't. But passions are built over time. They're cultivated just like knowledge in a subject is, like math or science. And I think that's really important to note. So I'm curious to hear, especially after you mentioned the power of testing from doing all of these practice tests, what are some of the biggest misconceptions you think students have about learning today? Oh, um, so having illusions of competence in learning, in other words, fooling yourself that you have learned something when you actually have not, is, um, is probably the most common um, problem. And it is so common that even I do it. Like, mm -hmm. I'll read a paper, and I'll go, I nailed this, I got this, it's all in long-term memory. <laughs> and then I'll try to remember it the next day, and I'm like, what was the subject of the paper? <laughs> you know, it's just amazing how you can fool yourself into thinking. But it, it's just because when something is in front of you, it is right there in that short-term working memory. And you think you there, as far as I know, like if you're sitting there looking at something, you have no way of knowing whether it is also in your long-term memory. And that's mm. the only way you've really learned it. I, like I had a student come up to me once and he goes, oh, 
you know, he shows me his test. It's all red marked. He flunked it. And, and I was like, well, you know, um, didn't do so well, did you? And he goes, I just don't understand how I could have flunked this test. I understood it when you said it in class. <laughs> you know, <what> I'm <laughs> we've gotten so overboard crazy with this idea that that you know understanding is the golden key that unlocks you know everything in learning. That we forget that memory is half the story, and if you can't remember what you've learned, forget it. It's you haven't really learned it. So, mm. so uh, that's why in retrieval practice, pulling. Mm information to mind like if you read a page look away and see if you can retrieve that page from your own mind or the key information and a lot of times it won't be every piece every word on that page it's the key it's the key nugget or nuggets of ideas that are on that page or in that chapter or that you learned in the class that day uh, or last week or whatever um my favorite scientist, Santiago Ramon y Cajal, was just a terrible student, awful, awful, awful. And he was thrown out of classes, um, you know, because he wouldn't pay attention as a kid. And he pretty clearly had symptoms of ADHD and dyslexia. Uh, but his father had a wonderful memory. And his father would try to explain to his teachers, because this was back in the 1860s or so, his father would explain to his teachers, you know, he's not going to memorize everything you tell him. That's not how he learns. He learns by just remembering the key idea, the key concept. And, um, and he ended up uh, winning the Nobel Prize and is now considered the father of modern neuroscience. So mm. if, if a really struggling um, you know, uh, subclinical dyslexic, um, probably clinically diagnosable as, um, as ADHD can make it that far. Uh, you know, I think we can all do much better than we think we can do. And he, oh, yeah. I should say, he learned super slowly. Um, and he would always regret this, but he said, you know, I was no genius. But he said, I've worked with many geniuses, people who could learn much faster than he could. But he said, these geniuses tend to jump to conclusions. And when they're wrong, they can't admit it and change their minds and revise their mm -hmm. hypothesis. So if you are a, a really slow, bedraggled learner, um, like Ramoni Cajal, rejoice, because you can sometimes do things even geniuses cannot. Mm, mm. that's a powerful last line the yeah. the idea that sometimes not having that straight genius level intelligence is in a way an advantage i really resonated with with what you said about understanding versus memorizing because i think particularly in the last few decades there has been a distaste with rote learning, like which is classically associated with memorizing. And while there is definitely a problem with rote learning in some cases, like just staring at something and just trying to dig it into your head, 
memorizing is not necessarily rote learning because in your book, as well as two other podcast guests I've had on here, Anthony Metvier and Lynn Kelly, Dr. Lynn Kelly, they describe how there are so many ways to memorize, which actually help you learn material better. For example, one of the ones you talk about in the book, which is so powerful, is just metaphor. If you can take a math concept and turn it into an image with sensations like smell, uh, taste, touch, visual sensations as well, it is so much more memorable. And it actually helps you understand it better if it is a metaphor that has that uh, understanding added in. Like another great method you talk about is the memory palace, which is choosing locations and sticking images inside that associate with what you want to remember. And it's so interesting to me how we in history had memory prized as such this important thing. Like our Australian Aboriginals used memory palaces to create massive song lines in their cultures. And ancient Greeks or orators like used it all the time for their speeches. And like in the medieval period, it was used for memorizing vast amounts of scripture uh, as well as many other things. And yet nowadays, I feel like that emphasis on memory has really taken a hit. So I'd be interested to hear what are some of the ways that you think students can learn to bring back that emphasis on memory to learning that they might not be using right now? So um, I think we should take a step back because this will also help put into context what you need to do to to help build your memory um, in a more useful way. So constructivism is the idea in education that we construct our own knowledge. And it is quite true in that we are, um, we are forming the connections in our own brains when we are learning something. But it's not true that, that I mean, that we don't need teachers, that it's all, it's all active learning and it's all student-centered. Because actually, teachers help you know where to make those placements of the neural connections. And so, unfairly, constructivists have often done a strong, straw man version of what's going on with, with rote learning. Um, and indeed, if you have bad traditional kinds of instructors, you will see them doing this. And you can have bad constructivist instructors, you can have bad traditional instructors. So, um, what constructivists will often say is, oh, rote learning. All you do is, the implication is, you're just going two times four is eight, two times four is eight, two times four is eight, and you're just doing that over and over and over and over again until, you know, it sticks in there. But that's not what good traditional teachers actually do. What they'll do is they'll say, two times four is eight, 
2 times 5 is 10. 2 times 6 is 12. You start picking up this pattern so that when you say 2 times 7 is 13, it feels weird. It's because your brain is beginning to pick up those patterns. And what good traditional uh, teaching does is during that rote learning process is it does what's called interleaving. It allows you to see the differences and the patterns of numbers. And there's a wonderful paper by a uh, Chinese, uh, a woman from Taiwan, and she studied uh, Chinese-American students. And what she found was something very interesting. You know, they, they, after a while, they start labeling themselves as really good at math. How did they, why did they do that? Well, it turns out their parents, they do, in this, they kept mentioning this in family after family that she interviewed. They would say, you know, it's when I, my parents insisted that no matter what the school told me, I had to memorize the multiplication tables. And when I memorize those tables, all of a sudden, things begin to click for me. And this was this common pattern. And so then um, uh, Chinese-American students would start labeling themselves as, oh, I'm good at math. But it actually had to do, ultimately, it kept going back to Chinese, Ameri or Chinese parents often insisted that their, their children had to memorize the multiplication tables. But think about it. Once you memorize that, you, I mean, you get the general sense. You're not doing it all just like rote with no understanding. Um, and that's another mischaracterization of, of constructivists. They'll be like, oh, you're just memorizing two times five is 10 without any understanding. No, they don't do that. They, they start with lots of examples. But by the time you get to, you know, 15 times 47, I'm sorry, but you, you kind of got to um, like not pull out manipulatives and put out a bunch of beans. You got the general idea and you can just run with that general idea. But um, so um, ultimately, um, let's see, now I kind of got myself off on this story and I was going to lead back to where you were heading us and where were you heading us? No, no problem. It was heading us in how do you think students can be more mindful about how they memorize things, keeping into account everything we've just discussed? Okay, so now you've just gotten a living example of my weak working memory, which has trouble holding lots yeah. of things in mind. Um, but uh, being more mindful, what this means is when you are memorizing things, you want to like think of it in context, like, like do interleaving. If you are memorizing the equation for uh, binomial distributions and and remember, poets say, memorize the, the poem and you will understand it more deeply. And it's just like that for math. Memorize the equation and you will understand it more deeply as you are thinking about one. Now, wait a minute. Why is that dividing that? Oh, it's kind of removing that aspect. You know, you're thinking more deeply about it. So then 
as you're memorizing, you memorize uh, binomial distribution, then you memorize the equation for geometric distribution. Then you interleave your learning. What's the difference between these two different distributions? So what you're trying to do is pull from your own mind easily confusable concepts, you know, on a more pragmatic level, uh, like what's the difference between calculating area of a circle versus the, the volume of a circle versus the perimeter of a circle? All of these have different equations. Why are they different? Um, so as you're memorizing, you're also comparing, that's interleaving. Mm -hmm. And I also, I like to say that um, it's, it is invaluable to memorize um, how to, like, how to solve problems. So, like, if you have an example problem, memorize how it, how it works. But don't memorize the solution like, like you're memorizing something meaningless. Memorize it this way. You go, okay, what was the first step of the solution? Got it. What was the step? You know, see if you can write it down. Then what was the second step? See if that first step whispers the second step to you. If you have to peek, go peek. And then work your way through and practice with it. So like day, like over several days, you'll find the first day, oh, you've got to work the equation or work that problem maybe a couple of times and then you're still kind of slow with it. Next day, mm you're faster and the next day you're like and eventually you want to get it so it's like a song that when you sing a song and you know that song it just unfolds intuitively and it comes mm. right out and that's what you want you look at it uh, at a problem and you go oh yeah that problem what you do is boop 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 you know and you sing it through that solution in your mind when you do this with enough practice problems when you see something new, you'll start going, oh, you know, that's kind of like this one and this one, and I know those songs. Oh, I can sing this song too. So, indeed, you know, it's not like like Freeman Dyson, who was like Einstein's go-to mathematician. So, you might think, oh, well, he was just brilliant. He was a brilliant mathematician. He just kind of got it because he was brilliant no he would go and practice during like when everybody was off doing other things at christmas vacation he would be going off and and just doing lots of problems lots of practice problems and that helped form his intuition same way for richard Feynman. um and they ended up saying he was like a magician but part of that magic of his ability to intuit what was going on very deeply was just a deep familiarity with many, many problems of that sort so that his, his mind consolidated, make, made a net of neural connections that allowed him to see um, connections between different ways of solving things that ordinary people couldn't see. Mm, yeah. Wow. So it sounds like one of the most powerful ways to memorize more effectively is to interleave different subject materials together rather than study one thing in isolation. 
And another thing you said was well, let's, that. So, mm-hmm. so, but things, so like get a problem down. You know, get that. Mm-hmm. Then compare that with a one that you could mix up with that problem. You know, um, so it isn't like you study math and then you start going out and study grammatical structures of, you know, of language or, or different bone types. It's mm. when you're interleaving, you want to be kind of um, mixing between things that could be confusable or and that may be related to a deeper level to some deeper pattern. Oh, okay, okay. So not like switching from studying bird species to calculus problems, but rather inside of calculus studying different similar topics and interleaving them together. Okay. Yeah, I'm glad that you... Yeah, along with that interleaving, practicing so that it becomes procedurally fluid. So Mm. I, I, I guess I should differentiate interleaving is important and procedural fluency with those with the individual things that you've learned is also very important mm, mm-hmm. yeah i think one of, one of the things that is really interesting about what you said is how what differentiates one of the things that differentiates experts from beginners is simply in the amount of information they have chunked into memory which gives them an incredible intuition. I like one of my favorite studies that I read recently is about how chess players actually aren't more intelligent that grandmaster chess players aren't necessarily more intelligent than the average person. They just have an incredible reservoir of in, uh, memory for different chess positions and how to play inside of those. And I think that's like a big misconception that students have is, is the genius is a genius because they're a genius, which sometimes obviously talent does help. And, and having a, a baseline higher intelligence can help if you use it correctly, but it's something you cultivate over time, that, that memory. Um, and two terms, which I, I think we should dive into more as well, because they're so important. Well, I I just have to say, you you bring up a a thought. So John Nash was the brilliant uh, Nobel Prize winning theorist. And um, he worked in game theory. And so he once went to Einstein because he was at Princeton. And so he's like, oh, yeah, I got this brilliant stuff about physics. So he goes to Einstein and he explains all his physics ideas to Einstein. And Einstein just basically patted him on the head and said, young man, go off and learn some physics. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, he just didn't know enough. Uh, and he thought he was super, you know, because he was super smart, but he, he couldn't add anything to uh, the study of physics because he just did not know enough despite his intelligence. Mm, yeah. Oh, that, that's a great story to really highlight like what, what we were just getting on. Um, one of the, the two of the other things that I think are very important inside of becoming a better learner is chunking as well as understanding the difference between diffused and 
focused thinking. So I was hoping you could dive into what those things are and how people can use them to learn more effectively. So um, first off, the brain has two different ways of learning um, or thinking about the world, perceiving the world. And you can think of it in one way like this. A bird is, it's got to peck and, and look at the ground very closely and intently to be able to peck a seed. But it also needs to like not get attacked and killed by something dive bombing it from above like a hawk. <laughs> so how are you able to focus and also have this kind of diffuse awareness? Well, as it turns out, um, this, um, this relates to these two different modes that the brain operates in. One is focus mode, and it usually uses a very kind of limited area of the brain. And then the other is a much more wide-ranging and uses um, like both sides of the brain. And, um, and this is the diffuse mode. Uh, it is called task negative network by by uh, psychologists and the it's called the default mode network by neuroscientists. But neither psychologists nor neuroscientists are very happy with the terminology they they have chosen. So I think if I used focus mode and diffuse mode, it actually gets around all the problems they have with the terminologies they've developed. <laughs> so, but um, what, what you do, you focus in on a problem. And then when you get stuck, you want to step back and use that other or allow that other mode to kind of fall into place, which is just this wide ranging, you're daydreaming, mind wandering sort of. Mm. And, mm -hmm. and what happens during this daydreaming or mind wandering um, is that your, your brain can range much more widely. And it also can like make these connections that you can't necessarily do, surprisingly enough, when you're actually focused on the problem. It's almost like being focused, it can help you solve simple things. But but if it's a, a bigger problem or something that isn't like in your your comfort zone that's easy, that you that relates to things you've already connected, you need that diffuse mode, that wide-ranging ability of your thoughts to wander in that diffuse mode. Mm -hmm. So, um, so learning, as it turns out, when you get stuck, uh, that's a good time to uh, rear back and take a little break. That's why the Pomodoro technique is so valuable, you know, where you, you are intensely focused and, and then you take that little, so maybe 25 minutes, although that can vary. Um, some people go longer, some people go shorter, but then a five-minute break, you go into that diffuse mode at the end. And this allows you to kind of get perspective on whatever you're, you're learning. And in some sense, I think it helps you with chunking your learning. If you think about it, you know, you can only learn so much in 25 minutes. And you get this kind of closure on the concept that you're learning. If you're um, so only studying in 25 minutes is like, what, what is this thing I'm trying to learn right now? And uh, I, 
I know, for example, a concert pianist who used to practice four hours straight. You know, when she sat down to practice, that was what she did. And then she decided, you know, I am going to break it up with five minutes every after every 25 minutes. And she found that she learned more efficiently and effectively and in shorter periods of time. She, she made much more progress when she did it this way because it gave her, you know, it kind of broke it up into chunks and then gave her a chance to like, to consolidate during those diffuse mode breaks. So oftentimes, um, for those of us like me, uh, like Santiago Ramon y Cajal, who have lesser capacity working memory, we can't hold lots in our working memory. We can only hold a limited amount of information. So it can really help us if we step back and say, okay, I, I just don't understand this concept. Um, what is a little piece of it that I can get? Now, next, what, what, okay, I got this. Now, what's the next piece? It's an analogous to, you know, I've learned the first um, five seconds of a song, you know, on the guitar, couple of chords. Okay, now I have a couple more chords. And then eventually, as you practice, you build those chunks together, and then you can mm -hmm. play the whole song. I think what you just mentioned, the difference between focused and diffuse mode thinking might have been the biggest takeaway I took from all of your books and also course, because I think it's so against what most people, most students, at least I know at Cornell, think about their learning. The way they think about it is if, first of all, study like three days before the test, not beforehand <laughs> because you procrastinate. But then when you do study, study for a lot at once, right? Like all focused mode. And the issue that that brings up that you emphasized is you need that shifting between the two to really get to find insight into a problem which can actually mean that paradoxically or seemingly counterintuitively taking a two-hour break where you go out and relax with friends or walk around nature is going to make it so that you can do the problem better. Um, I've experienced this myself with uh, outside of school with content creation. Sometimes I'll, I'll do what Stephen King does when he writes novels, which is, I don't know if you've heard, but he'll write a novel for uh, about like six months at a time. And then he'll actually put it away and won't pick it up again for like six months. And when he comes back to the novel, there is this profoundly different viewpoint he has on it because he has forgotten a lot about what the novel was about. And therefore, he brings this outsider's perspective to it that gives him insight into how to make it better. And yes. I think that's the same type of uh, the benefit you get when you do a math problem or a an essay, and then you come back to it 
a couple hours yes. or even a couple days, weeks later. Hello, Aiden here. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, you should join my newsletter, Aiden's Infinite Play, with 500 plus other subscribers, receiving weekly actionable tips, helping college students level up their note-taking and studying inside Obsidian. It includes the knowledge I've accumulated from over a thousand plus hours of learning to take better notes and from courses such as Building a Second Brain, Build Your Knowledge Portfolio, and the Linking Your Thinking Workshop. Have a great rest of the podcast, and if you want, you can sign up for the newsletter in the description below. And it's funny because I, I often wonder whether my interest in looking at the world through different perspectives is what made me really focus in when I saw this information about, you know, the default mode network and focus mode. And it's like, these are different perspectives for looking at the world. These are really important. And mm -hmm. it made me laugh in that um, uh, there, at that time, there was only like one paper on, um, you know, default mode network in, in its relation to education, but it didn't have a lot of practical application. Uh, mm. But, I mean, at least it was mentioned. Uh, but, you know, it's like one research paper on this vitally important, and there's still <laughs> a, not necessarily a lot in, in education. So, um, it, you know, it just, it does make me laugh that... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it, you know, sometimes I feel like there's these these golden nuggets in neuroscience that are really important for our learning, yeah. but they just don't get out to the public because neuroscientists are busy and they're working so hard to do what they're doing that they cannot also have this grasp of what's going on, you know, in just general everyday learners. Um, yeah. So, Yeah. Oh, and then that's where like content creators like uh, Andrew Huberman or like podcasts like this are so awesome because it helps disseminate that neuroscience research to more yes. broad public. And you, you know, what you said was really interesting because it, it reminded me of how the, th the, the focus versus diffuse mode thinking isn't just helpful inside of math and science or anything in education, but it's also a great metaphor for how to live your life. And what I mean by that is most of the time you could say you're living in more of a focus mode, like on the day-to-day -day basis, right? You're not looking at your life from that higher order view, because if you were always looking at it from that higher order view, you'd never be living your life. <laughs> so right. I... I think it's a great metaphor for how to live life as well, because it it really emphasizes the importance of having those sporadic, regular times where you do more of a of a holistic look at your life, more of a what you could say diffuse mode thinking. I know it's a little bit different than what it means inside of the learning context, but then you most of the time are in your like little focused mode state where you're living day to day, week to week. And you have those periodic times where you're like, okay, did I just live in a way that aligns with my values? Am I 
going towards a direction that I want to be. Uh, so I think it's useful in just so many areas. And that that's why I loved that idea inside of the all of the, the learning uh, resources that you have. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, just don't, and I think that is like meta, 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 like is just so invaluable about how you live your life in self, itself. But for me also, it, it, it helps me to kind of, you know, I almost think of it as trust in the universe. In other words, I'll sit there some evening and I'm like, oh, how am I going to manage this? I've got, you know, uh, a talk I'm supposed to do here and I've done talk there. And then I've got this other thing and I've got to, you know, and I've got to get this all. And, and I can see the problem. I don't know how to solve the problem. And, uh, and I'm like, trust in the universe. Tomorrow you will have an idea of how to tackle this and how mm. to do this. And, and I'll be like, no, I won't. No, there's just no way you can, you know, figure this out. And then by the next day, you know, nine times out of 10, wow, oh, I didn't think of that. But it's some wacky out of left field approach that resolves all the, the challenges and actually puts it all together even better. Um, yeah. So I have this kind of trust in the universe, which is, in <laughs> essence, let your diffuse mode take off and do its thing and trust that it's going to go do that. It, that's a skill in itself because diffused mode thinking, like you alluded to, it's a bit more of an unconscious process, like subconscious. I mean, you don't consciously do the diff the the thinking that your subconscious does while right. you're not working that literally is inside of the definition so in in a way you almost don't uh people almost don't trust it innately because it's like well i'm not the one doing the conscious thought so it's not in my control and people like controlling things so in that way it it almost requires to be a good learner to also be understanding of yourself and, and trusting of yourself because if you don't you're not going to have the ability to say i'm going to stop this this assignment now or this problem now because i'm stuck and i'm going to leave it for my tomorrow self to do because it, it's scary to do that right you're almost alleviating some control yeah, and it's kind of like, well, no, if I just keep trying, I'll figure it out, you know. Yeah. Um, but there does come a time when your little internal compass kind of goes, okay, wait a minute, I'm on spin here. Uh, so that's the time to say trust in your diffuse mode. Yeah. Oh, I love that. <laughs> One of the the other questions that I wanted to like veer into was – one of the, I don't know if you know this, but in the past few years, there's been like rise in linked-based note-taking apps like Obsidian, Notion, Rome Research, Tana. I don't know if any of these are clicking. No. But I'm interested. Oh, I've heard of Obsidian before. Yeah, Obsidian. So, so what these note-taking apps allow you to do is link knowledge together like a Wikipedia page. So 
like how a Wikipedia page has a ton of links to other Wikipedia pages, these apps allow you to take notes individually and connect them together to form ideas that originally weren't there, like emergence, uh, right. it's the whole that is different from the sum of its parts. And knowing that you didn't know what these were before, I totally don't blame you if this question will be difficult, but I was interested in hearing how based off of your understanding of how learning works, how do you think these linked base apps might help in the learning process and where could they hurt? Um, so this, these remind me of concept mapping. Mm, yeah, sense, yeah, very similar. Right. And so concept maps, um, everybody just thought concept maps are the be all and end all. It was so exciting. Everybody just jumped on board and said, this is the best way to learn. And they, that got taught to all the people's people in education. And the only problem was that nobody actually went to check to see if it was indeed the best way to learn. Um, when Jeff Karpicki um, published a paper in Science of very simple comparison of, of retrieval practice, concept mapping, underlining, and, um, and rereading, he found that by far retrieval practice was way better than all the others, including concept mapping. So, um, I think it's a bit like, like when you're being creative, you are linking things in a very different way. And what people like Bill Gates likes to do, he likes, so, okay, I hope I don't lose track of where it was because this is a very interesting digression. Uh, so Bill Gates likes to uh, take like a week off and he just reads. Mm, yeah. And, yeah. and what this allows him to do is get a lot of information together at one time in his mind. And part of what's happening real is probably relates to the fact that when you learn via the hippocampus, like sometimes we, we make fun of people and say, oh, you're just cramming. It's very bad learning. But actually cramming does work to help people do really well on tests. It's just that what cramming is doing is it's making connections in your hippocampus and these hippocampal links are, they're easy to make, but they're easy to fall away as well. Mm. So you can hold a bunch of information in your hippocampal um, indicial memory, memory um, and you can have it there temporarily in mind um, and you can do really well on a test, but then next semester when you're supposed to start working with the material, you may very well have forgotten it because hippocampal kind of cramming learning is not that solid neocortical set of real hefty connections that stay there over time. So, um, so hippocampal learning, yes, you can put those links together and they're, they're all there, or, yeah. or at least indexes to links. Um, and you can get a lot of information at once. And sometimes it's just having them there at the same time 
you know, in mind, even if they're very different ideas, can help you be really creative. So I can see how an app like Obsidian could help you to be more creative um, and to kind of, I mean, you're pretending to yourself that you've got that information in long-term memory instead of right in front of you Mm -hmm. uh, in working memory, uh, because that's kind of where it really is. So as far as um, whether it really makes you more creative because you have an in-depth neural set of patterns that you created in your mind, uh, I don't think it's going to help with that. Uh, it may help with certain forms of creativity, uh, though, it, you know, but um, so my sense, it would it would be a bit more shallow, a bit more like the concept mapping idea makes you think you're learning things really well and you've got these connections, but they're actually not within your own brain. So, mm-hmm. you know, that I mean, that's my quick gut yeah, You know, we just love having hyperlinks. It's like so cool. And so we would love to think that it could help us with our learning. But is it kind of like, you know, having calculators when people were saying, oh, well, you don't need to memorize the multiplication tables anymore because it's calculators. We got them now. And then, of course, yeah, uh, people begin. I have to laugh because I was recently in Finland and I spoke with a bunch of uh, science, technology, engineering, and math professors. And remember, Finland's like supposed to be number one in the world. With in the world students. for education, yeah. yeah. And, and it does make me laugh because there's some evidence that um, that there's possible fiddling with those rankings. People often don't know that the PISA <laughs> tests um, – you don't get the same questions evaluated in the same, in uh, in different countries. They select those questions that are going to be evaluated afterwards, which means that you can kind of cause some countries to rise and some countries to fall. Mm. Uh, Tim's doesn't do this. That's a different test, and in that test. Finland is middle of the road. But anyway, so I was talking with a bunch of um, STEM professors in in Finland, and they were all just, they're like, Barb, and it was so funny, it's Finland, you know? So you're thinking, I'm going to look at a bunch of Finnish professors. No, they were professors just like my colleagues at Oakland University of Michigan. Who are my colleagues at Oakland University of Michigan? They are individuals who came from rote traditional rote um, learning, countries where this kind of learning is really valued. So, you know, places like India and uh, China and the Middle East. So, most of my colleagues are from places where rote learning is really is, is uh, considered valuable. And indeed, they're in Finland All of the STEM, you know, not all, but many of the STEM professors that I spoke with um, had similar backgrounds, came from countries where there was rote learning, uh, was was considered of value. And they were all complaining to me, you know, you're singing in the choir bar because we know that retrieval practice and rote learning, it can be really important. Can you please tell the teachers of Finland this? Because 
they, you know, and they were telling me, they're like, our students really struggle with even fundamental math uh, concepts. They just really can't, can't do it very easily. And, uh, you know, it's not like their home countries. And I'm just laughing, you know, it's like, you know, I am in Finland, the bastion of the world's greatest, you know, and, you know, the professors are just like, oh, come on, you know, our students, what are their biggest problems? Learning math, they just can't grasp even simple concepts very easily. Yeah. Oh, man, that's so funny. Like learning everywhere, there are those misconceptions that we've talked about. And I think that's why it's so important to talk about it because it can literally be helpful everywhere. Uh, I I really resonated with what you said earlier about the linked-based note-taking. I think the way I feel about it right now, having used a linked-based note-taking app for quite a bit of school is just like with any tool, like concept mapping, like retrieval practice, like uh, calculators, there is a middle ground that you have to find for yourself where if you go over that or if you go under it, um, it's it's not going to do what you think. Like if, if you're just spending your time hyperlinking all the time and it's like, wow, I'm downloading this into my second bur- in my first brain. No, you're not because you aren't doing retrieval practice. You're just, it's right in front of you. And that doesn't guarantee you'll know it after the fact. What I have found it very helpful for is in building my understanding of a topic before trying to memorize it in its uh, memorize individual parts. I think, tell me if I'm wrong or not, but the way I see it is uh, I see note taking as a way for for me in school of building understanding and then i see retrieval practice as downloading my second brain which is my note taking notes uh, my notes inside of obsidian into my first brain and i don't want to download my second brain before i understand it otherwise i don't know what's important to memorize what's not important to memorize um, so I think in that sense, it, it can be a really good tool as long as you don't <laughs> treat it as like gospel. Yeah, like, go this is how, it. this is everything. This is how you do it. You just link and you don't do anything else. <laughs> yes. Well, I do have to add though, that like my favorite retrieval practice app is something called, I do recall. Yes. And yeah. <laughs> th- what they do, they have one of the things I love about it is they have a link, but what it does is it helps you link back to where your original source material was. Mm-hmm. So like when I'm first like really, really trying to uh, get the key ideas of like a PDF of a key paper, uh, you know, I, I can go through, I've got some key concepts I've got, and I create flashcards as I'm reading But then maybe three months later, I happened to go through that deck, and I'm like, what the heck was this? Or can't really quite remember what 
you know, I can see my retrieval practice question, but I don't even remember quite what the what the answer said. You know, I mean, even when I see it, I'm kind of confused. So I have a direct link to go back to the source material. And then, oh, then it's like, oh, that's, oh, yeah, it was just this, you know, and mm-hmm. it, it works out really well. Yeah, that I, I totally agree. Like I do recall that's one function I haven't found in any other space repetition app is going back to context. And I think that's so powerful because the inevitable thing that happens when you summarize information, even in your own words, is some of the nuance is taken out of it, which means sometimes just going back to something in its original context beforehand is so valuable. And this is what drives me crazy as a, as a content creator myself, when I hear people say, oh, this book could have been a six paragraph blog post. And I have like, I have two, I mean, sometimes that's true, but I have so many problems with that as a statement, because like, first off, uh, the context surrounding an idea, even if that idea could be said in one sentence, is crucial to getting that really deep grasp of it and also is super helpful if you don't understand the idea later on in reintegrating yourself with it. And also, I think it like misconceives what a beautiful part of reading is in the first place, which is like when I'm reading a book like the meditations by Marcus Aurelius or your book, learning how to learn. Uh, I'm not trying to speed through it as fast. Like I don't, I don't want the reading session to be, to be just snap over. I actually enjoy reading. So to think like you should, you should want to skip through it as fast as possible. It's like if, if you were playing tennis, you in, in you're playing for an hour and a half, you would never say someone, to someone, yeah, would you like to skip over the tennis match? Let's just like teleport to after you've won or after I've won. It's like, what? no, no one would say that. <laughs> it's, That's a great analogy or or yeah. just tiny little snapshots of the key points of the game. Yeah. You know, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like you're skipping over the fun part. The, the fun part is the reading. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, I... I have a tradition on the podcast, which is I ask a previous podcast guest what they want to ask the next one. So Dario De Silva was my last podcast guest. And one of the questions he wanted to ask you was what advice would you give yourself 10 years ago? Uh, Keep on trucking. You're on a good path. <laughs> uh, and, and it does make me laugh because, uh, like, I remember when I was in my late 30s, I was just like, what's my purpose in life? No. Am I ever going to you know, have anything that is helpful for other people that is really, you know, and uh, I just felt quite lost. And it's like, I don't know. I, I kind of came to my own in my 60s. So, um, so there's hope ahead, no matter what your age is. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think that's great advice. 
especially at 19 myself, yeah, you can feel like, uh, uh, like, like you have to figure out what it is right now. Otherwise you will spontaneously combust and explode. Um, <laughs> and I think like one of the key misconceptions about purpose is it's something that you find and then you just kind of go with that for the rest of your life. And just like we talked about with passion earlier, as well as cultivating an understanding for math and science, it's something that you get over time. Like you, purpose is like an onion. Like you kind of, like you dig further into it over time, the layers get extracted. And then maybe at some point you find something that deeply, deeply resonates with you. And you do that for a long time. But, uh, especially at 19, I can't say I've found <laughs> that inside layer. Uh, I'm digging, digging the hole like Shrek on the outside. <laughs> yeah, well, all I can say is um, if you've had as many failures as I've had, you are on a good path to a great future because I've had <laughs> so many failures. That's just amazing. Uh, 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 what are three books that have resonated with you most? Um, I love the book War and Peace and War uh, by Peter Turchin. That's a wonderful book. Uh, Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World by Jack Weatherford um, is another uh, really fantastic book. And then Rhythms of the Brain uh, by Georgi Bozaki, which is, uh, I actually got halfway through and I had to just stop and go back to the beginning and start again because it's, it's quite a, a read, um, but it's, uh, it's been invaluable for, if you want to understand the brain, that's the book to go to. Mm, yeah. Ooh, I'm definitely, I'm going to check, check some of those out because I have not read any of those. And, I, I would love to dive a little bit deeper into like the brain, especially. I think it's just so fascinating. What uh, question would you like me to ask the next podcast guest? <laughs> but this is tough because uh, what is the next podcast guest? Uh, who is it or what is their subject area? Ooh, that is a, that's a really good question. So the next podcast guest is, I believe, King. He is inside of the obsidian personal knowledge management community like i am uh you know what obsidian is personal knowledge management is a community that tries to figure out how to capture information and foster it over time inside of a digital note-taking app or some other analog method to make sense of the world uh, or create things out of. So he particularly inside of the Obsidian PKM space is interested in a form of note-taking called the Zettelkasten method, which is a method of note-taking where you take literature notes, which are notes from podcasts, articles, books, any resource you consume, and you create permanent notes out of them, which are like notes with one focal idea on them. 
that are connected to other permanent notes. And the idea is like over time, you grow this knowledge base that becomes more than the sum of its parts in a very bottom-up fashion. Uh, so I hope that was helpful in understanding who King is and what question would you like me to ask him? <laughs> well, I just had to say on the side that my um, I had uh, a doctor um, uh, and he he was an oral surgeon and he abs he created this note taking system that was exact uh, along those lines and that is what he he is a dent uh, DDS and an MD at the same time he's like that's what allowed me to get a <laughs> yeah. double set of degrees was this kind of um, note taking approach <clears throat> so. Um, I guess I would ask um, just that question that you brought up. Um, how how can you be sure? Well, in essence, how can you be sure that what you are just writing down and making hyperlinks for is actually getting into your brain? Mm-hmm. You know, because oh. if it's not then, uh, you, you know, you might be developing a kind of a facile um, sort of illusion of competence. Yeah. You, you know, so how do you, how do you get past that? And how do you ensure that you really are building something within yourself and not just on the page? That's a, that is such a good question. Knowing the Zettelkasten note-taking system. Because, you know, one thing I actually wanted to ask you based off of that is, do you think there is a case for, well, I guess this is how I'll word it. When I'm creating content using the Zettelkasten system, because I use it myself, sometimes I go in with the idea, I want to memorize this. Like, I want to learn this material for future use. And sometimes I go in with the idea of, I want to write about this in a manner which I'm proud of, but I don't necessarily want to memorize it afterward. So do you think there is a case for purposely not, like being okay with it not going into your brain when you're doing the notes, as long as you're intentional and aware of it? Oh, I think there is. There's definitely a case because there, I cannot remember everything I am reading, but I just kind of want to mm. get a general sense of some things. And and sometimes I wish I could remember more key points. You know, I'll be like, oh, I was learning this stuff about the default mode network. I read 18 papers on the default mode network. I really had it sharp in mind. <laughs> and now it's like been six months since I've been doing those readings and, you know, it's faded. And, um, but I still do have a general sense of things. So, um, and that has to be good enough for the kind of writing that I'm doing. So, yeah. uh, you know, be wonderful if I had a perfect memory, but I think if I there's good evidence that people who have really really good memories do have trouble seeing the forest 
because they are focusing on the dreams. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of S in psychological research. Like, uh, you yeah. probably heard of the guy that just yeah. remembered everything because every time he heard a number, there's an explosion of sensations, which makes things really memorable. Um, and it sounds horrible. <laughs> it sounds because you can't, like, like, there's a reason we forget stuff. 99% of the information coming into my set, uh, uh, coming in to myself, whether it be through the eyes or through my ears, uh, I forget like instantaneously. And well, if I could add a book to those three, uh, a really good book along those lines is forgetting the value of not remembering. That's uh, <laughs> wonderful. Talks exactly about that. Yeah. That sounds, yeah, that sounds like a really, really uh, interesting along that lines that we were just going in. Is there any questions that I haven't asked you would have liked me to ask? You know, you've asked so many great questions that if I, if I suggested more, we would launch onto another, you know, two hour episode or something. <laughs> so I better just say this was good for today. Yeah. This, yeah. Your questions are awesome. So it's I appreciate it. Yeah. You know, it helps when you read the book, <laughs> read the book. So you read. Yeah, it does. <laughs> if I was just like going off, off the cuff, just like, Oh, Dr. Oakley, like it probably wouldn't have gone very well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'd yeah. still make it work, but uh, uh, yeah, we talk about drinking beer in Russia or something on military uh, yeah. service. Yeah, <laughs> there's always. Uh, well, I have some very good stories all over those. Guys, so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Doctor Oakley, thank you so much for for coming on to the podcast. Has been wonderful. If you enjoyed the podcast, you should consider checking out my and fellow Obsidian creator John Maverick's flagship note-taking course, Obsidian University, your secret weapon in school. In it, you'll learn how to find enjoyment in learning and studying by breaking out of the cookie-cutter mindset. You'll flesh out a systemized process for taking notes on class lectures and outside learnings to get straight A's. You'll create a unique, personal knowledge base inside Obsidian that scales across classes and semesters. You'll set up your system up front to require only 15 to 30 minutes of daily maintenance. You'll learn how to navigate the overwhelming level of information and overcome FOMO. You'll learn how to integrate AI into your note-taking, and you'll gain access to a community discord with fellow students learning to make the same transformation. Join the new student era today by checking out the course in the description below or signing up for one of my free email courses related to the course on the landing page. I hope you had a fantastic time listening and I will see you on the next podcast.